lights went out all of a sudden. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Happy Saturday. Welcome back to House Talk Pre-Game. I am licensed marriage and family therapist, sports family therapist, Dr. Lauren Pitts. This is our amazing guest today, Brian Sachetta. Um, Ronnie's around here somewhere, being Ronnie. Um, it's going to be a great show today. We are so excited to be back with you. Going to have some powerful, powerful, powerful conversation. As always, just want you to know, Ronnie was harassing the heck out of me before the show started. And I will tell you, guess what, y'all? <laughs> oh, we got a Patriots fan here today. He was at the game. He was at the game. He went to the game when the Cowboys played, but I'm going to leave it at that. And we are going to chop it on up. Ronnie is here. Where to go? Where to go? So look, folks, today... We are having a conversation about Ronnie's head. And they need, need to get out of here. Yeah, you bet. Hey, morning, morning, morning. Sorry for the delays. I had uh, a, a little hater over here that uh, had some technical difficulties, but I'm um, sorry about that. Um, You're good. How far, how far did you get? Tell them what the topic is and do your normal harassing conversation. And I, 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 entered, I didn't do a formal introduction of Brian that I'm gonna leave that up to you. Um, but I just told him, you know, what I always tell him that you were harassing me before the show and that's what you do. I shared with them that Brian's a Patriots fan and then he's at the game. So, you know, all smiles. And go ahead, just jump in and do what you normally do. Start harassing Brian, me. I'm, I'm, Brian, I'm sorry she had to trigger you like that and bring up the, the past, but it's okay, Brian. Trust and believe that I have your sentiments in good hands as the season progresses. Um, my grandma used to say, what doesn't come out in the wash will sure enough come out in the rinse. Um, so it's all good. It's, it's all good. But uh, welcome to, welcome back, everybody. This is episode 136 of House Talk Pre-Game. We got a really great topic today called Get Out of Your Head. So we got, we're going to be talking about anxiety and depression and how being able to get out of your head and really rethink what we think about anxiety and depression can give you an advantage over how to deal with those emotions and really to work towards the things you want in your life. So what are some of the things we'll be discussing today? First and foremost, we're going to be talking about what happened this past week at St. Augustine College in North Carolina, a CIAA school after firing their coach and some of the revelations that the coach had in his news conference. Um, Dr. Piss will have our mental health tip of the week this week. Our guest, uh, Brian Sachetta, is going to be talking about anxiety, depression, and the stigmas associated with talking about these issues openly to the public and things like that. His two books that he's released uh, called Get Out of Your Head and Get Out of Your Head, Volume 2, that talk about anxiety and depression. Uh, what are some of the best practices and treatments, you know, including medical and holistic options towards anxiety and depression? And finally, how can athletes acknowledge, identify, and accept their emotions in order to heal? We got a lot of things to go over today, a lot of great topics we're gonna to be talking about. So let's get right into our first thing. Um, like I said, uh, this past week um, from HBCU Game Day, they released an article that said, HBCU program practice on concrete and without full-time trainer. So the article reads, St. Augustine University football team is 0-7 this season. But given the account by freshly fired coach Howard Feggins, it's impressive that the Raleigh HBCU has been able to play all seven games anyways. Feggins, who was fired last Friday, October 13th, held a news conference on Monday to talk about the challenges he faced in just over seven months as the program's head coach. With dozens of his former players around him for support, Feggins revealed that Division II HBCU had challenges getting proper equipment due to unpaid bills and had to practice on concrete without a full-time athletic trainer while turf was being installed in a stadium. 
<clears throat> Fagan said he made arrangements to secure a practice field within Wake County, but needed proof of insurance from the school. The administrators were unresponsive. He quotes, during, I, I see it, buddy, I see it. During the two weeks I was sending emails to administration, Fagan says, trying to get the uh, insurance so that my team can have the best chance to compete on Saturdays, I got no response. One day I sent three emails to administration and never heard back. I was so frustrated about the lack of communication, but more importantly, the mental and physical well-being of our student athletes that I emailed the administration on forfeiting our Bowie State game. Fagan said his stutter forfeit finally elicited a response from the administration. <clears throat> Former St. Augustine, I mean, um, I kept saying, why? Why should I put our young man in harm's way when the administration not showing they care who allowed the football team to practice on concrete, basically a high tempo walkthrough and now to go play a fast physical game on Saturdays without the proper preparation. As I said, I finally got an email back from the chief of uh, staff saying we cannot forfeit a game, but take a look at the grass beside George Hall and St. Agnes Hospital. So Fagans goes on to talk about how um, they only had an athletic trainer from the hours of 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. And so if their players had any injuries, rehab, anything like that, they couldn't get proper care. There are also reports of that a lot of the athletes who lived on campus weren't getting proper meals throughout the week either. And so a lot of them were complaining about starving, not having food. And, you know, I went to HBCU. I was at a Division II school at Virginia State. And I've talked about this at times before on the show where, you know, my freshman and sophomore year, um, we had a lot of uh, mishaps, a lot of, you know, things that we didn't have. I've talked about some of the, uh, you know, situations we had in the locker room where we had to just make ends meet. We had to, you know, use certain things as laundry loops. Um, <laughs> we had to use tape as string at times and stuff like that. So, you know, I understand some of the disadvantages some of these schools have. But at the end of the day, regardless of division, if it's division one, two, or three, these schools have the same expectations of their student athletes. When you sign up to be a football player, basketball, baseball, softball, track, whatever the case may be for any of these universities, they expect you as a student athlete to give them your best effort as a student and as an athlete day in and day out, year after year until you graduate. And, you know, I can't speak for PWIs because I didn't go to a PWI. But one thing I will say that I've noticed as a constant theme for our HBCUs is that while they expect the student athletes to go out there and give their best effort to be the best student athletes they can be, oftentimes that's not reciprocated to the student athletes in form of having proper facilities, having the proper staff and administration for the treatment and everything, making sure you have the proper equipment, making sure you have the proper practice facilities to make sure you can get a quality practice, the proper rooms where we can actually watch film, break down film and have a safe space to talk about those things. And, you know, even at Virginia State, you know, we used to have to have to use the classrooms on campus as film rooms or our meeting rooms and stuff like that. Um, you know, so I, I understand a lot of these inequalities and everything, but when we start risking our players, you know, health, when we start risking their mental health and telling them, hey, look, you know, y'all better find a patch of grass somewhere and make it work. Like, what are we really telling our student athletes? You know, how are we protecting their mental health? How are we protecting their physical health? I went to an HBCU where I had knee injuries, where they had the best resources they could possibly find, and that was not adequate enough. And so you have these players who, hey, look, I always tell people, we know that out of the 250,000 on average high school seniors are a year, only 6% of them get to go to college and play sports. And out of those 6% they get to go to college, only 1% of them are going to a professional league of any type of sort for football, basketball, whatever the case may be. So a lot of those players are literally going out there because they have a deep desire and passion for football. They love the game of football. I promise you at a D2 school, 
we knew maybe one person every few years would have even a legit shot at the NFL, right? So we were all there because we loved to play the game. I would imagine all those student athletes at St. Aug love to play the game, but they don't have the same, they don't have that same support from the staff, the administration who expect them to go out there, go in the classroom, maintain a positive uh, GPA, study, attend class, engage in class, but then have to go out there in the afternoon and practice on concrete. I don't know if anybody's ever worn cleats on concrete before, but it's like ice skating. It's not easy. And that's not fair to those players because those players are going to, those injuries are real. If you ever had a real uh, injury in any type of sport, it, it's for real. And when you get to the college level, those nicks and bruises, especially at this point in the season, you need treatment almost every day to make sure you can go out there for the remainder of the season and give your best effort. It's absolutely uncalled for. And it's also uncalled for that they fired the coach because he wanted to start speaking out about some of these injustices that his team had to deal with. Why does a coach have to threaten a forfeited game for you to actually respond about, hey, my student athletes have next to nothing. My student athletes are just making ends meet. They're doing what they have to do to go out here and practice and still go out there on Saturdays and put forth the best effort. I, I just don't understand that. And we see this year after year now, whether it's the, the, the dorm rooms on campuses, the athletic facilities. We just saw last year when Deion Sanders decided to leave Jackson State, all the things that started coming about, about the inequalities of the administration, how they wanted, you know, a power grab and stuff like that. I just truly don't understand if we're going to have sports and offer sports for these kids, we have to offer the proper care and treatment for them as well. They need the proper facilities. They need the proper resources, physical and mental. Like, this is just absolutely uncalled for. If you can't provide that for the kids, don't have the program. I understand for a lot of these HBCUs, football is probably the really only thing that brings money in outside of tuition. But is that little bit of money that you're getting from maybe having 100 people at your game worth those players' lives? Is it really worth their health? Is it really worth their physical and mental health? I don't think so. We have to do better. And I know it is not just the administration, it's the alumni, it's the students, it's the community, it's everybody putting forth effort. We've talked about this year after year, season after season. It takes a village. For these HBCUs, it's gonna take a village for them to survive. St. Augustine is already on probation for their accreditation for the school. They've been on probation since December. So they have issues, they have systemic problems. And it's not the first time either. So, as opposed to you know coming on here and bashing them and stuff like that, I hope this is a learning lesson for the school, the administration, but also the athletics program to say, hey, we cannot do a disservice to these kids to have them come out there in these conditions and expect them to be the best student athletes they can be. That's BS. Those are not safe conditions. Those are not fair conditions. We have to do better for our student athletes. St. Augs has to do better. The CIAA has to do better. We have to do better as fans of the sport supporters of the sport we have to do better to make sure that we have the best environments for our athletes when they go out there and perform so i, I really hope st Augs can do better and i hope coach fagans can land back on his feet you know um we would love to have his perspective on you know what happened what took place and things like that and what are some things we can learn from this and do better for our student athletes moving forward across all bases and all levels um dr piss any any thoughts yeah you know it, it's unfortunate um and it's unfortunate at a very deep level. And you, you said the magic word, systemic. I think that the condition of St. Aug and a number of our HBCUs, they are a mere reflection of many of the systemic issues that we have as a people. They are um, a mirror image of 
some of our communities. And what's so deeply disheartening about all of this is that many of these children are coming into these athletic programs from comparable home lives and they're they're going into an institution of higher learning wanting the opportunity to get a stellar education and to have a great athletic experience and they're experiencing some of the same hardship at school that they were experiencing at home in their community so when you say systemic it it really is it is it is a a systemic issue that runs much deeper than St. Aug. It runs much deeper than the athletic program. It's a cultural problem that needs to be addressed because so many of our HBCUs mirror the injustice and the, the inequities that we see throughout our communities. And it's, it's, it's a problem um, that can definitely uh, use some intervention at much, much, much higher levels than, than the university administration. So yeah, it's unfortunate. No, very unfortunate. Um, and like I said, I, I hope they can, you know, learn from this and do better. Like it, it, people don't understand, like if you've played football at any level, you understand that what you go through in that 60 minutes or 48 minutes if you're in high school, um, one game can, can change your physical, you know, life for the rest of your life. You know, um, and to have to go out there week after week, not having proper treatment. I, I know for a fact, if we didn't even have the treatment team that we had when I was at state, when I was going through my knee, you know, knee issues and everything, um, I couldn't fathom, you know, what that would have been like, you know. So I can only imagine some of the players, you know, on St. Aug's team who have legit issues, have legit injuries, lingering injuries that last throughout the entire season and only having a trainer there for two hours out the day. Like, what about the other sports? There's other sports going on this fall. You got volleyball, cross country. Um, you know, they got fall ball for baseball and softball and stuff like that. So there's other at basketball team. Basketball season is getting ready to ramp up in a few weeks. There's other sports teams on that campus too. Where's their trainer? Where's their staff? Where's their, you know, facilities and stuff like that? So this just isn't a football issue. This is an entire athletics issue. So, you know, I really hope they can do better with that. Um, so Dr. Pitts, do you have a, a mental health tip of the week this week? I do. All right. What and you got for us this week? <laughs> hold on to your chair. <laughs> uh oh. Right. Can I hold on to the couch? Does that count too? You're good. You're good. So, the question that I asked some clients this week is, and I was dead serious, is Would you prostitute yourself for any reason? And of course, everybody's, oh, like, oh, God, why is she asking that? And I asked like three or four times, would you, you know, and they were like, oh my God, Dr. Pitts, absolutely not. And I'm like, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, Dr. Pitts, I, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Are you sure? Dr. Pitts, I, I would not prostitute myself. And I've asked this of male clients and female clients. And the answer to that question is an emphatic no. Okay. So if that's the case, then why do you allow your anxiety, your depression, your trauma, the situation, circumstances, people, places, and things in your life to become the pimp of your life. That's what they are. The moment, and we're gonna get into this in depth, but when you look at 
mental illness. Let's focus on the mental piece. It is sickness in your thoughts at its infancy, right? Mental illness before you were diagnosed with general anxiety disorder, before you were diagnosed with major depressive disorder, before you were diagnosed with adjustment disorder, with mixed emotions of conduct and, 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 and what have you, before you're diagnosed with fill in the blank. In infancy, it started out as sickness in your thoughts. So whatever it is that is fueling those sick thoughts, if you will, has become your emotional pimp. And particularly when you are unwilling to do the self-work that is necessary to get healthy and stay healthy in your thought life, you in essence have become a prostitute to your circumstances. Now here's the add-on. Of course, that takes people aback and they're like, oh, I can't believe she said that. But here's the add-on. I said, if somebody, and this is presented to both male and female clients, if somebody walks up to you in the street and just bow, and just punches you in your chest or punches you in your face, what you doing? Everybody, even some of the most passive clients I have say, oh, we fight. Oh, oh you, you fight. So you'll fight somebody for physically assaulting you, but you won't fight the enemy of your mind, which are all of these things that have transpired that are robbing you of your power to be the absolute best version of yourself that you can be. Your mind is worth just as intense a fight for your well-being as your physical person is. Folk are willing to lay hands and fight to maintain physical safety, but so oftentimes people curl up in a ball and won't fight for soundness of mind. And I'm here to tell you today that if your mind is not right, everything else is going to go to pot. So what you should be fighting for with every fiber of your being is soundness of mind with the same passion, the same fervor, the same intensity that you would fight with if somebody walked up to you on the street and punched you in your chest, slapped you in your face or punched you in your face. That's my mental health tip for today. Mm. My sound mind is being challenged right now. For those out there with uh, toddlers that are the age of two and three right now, my, my prayers and blessings are with you right now. I'm in this fight with you too. I'm in this fight with you. So with that being said, um, we have a fighter in our, in, in our midst today, uh, somebody who has fought mental health, fought you know the adversities of dealing with you know emotions, negative, positive, all that good things. Um, we have a very special guest today, Brian Sacheda, um, who is the author and owner of Get Out of Your Head a brand and book series that seeks to help folks overcome anxiety and depression. By trade, Brian is a software developer. He combines his experiences in the tech world with previous mental health battles to draw parallels between computer systems and the human mind and give readers practical strategies for evading their own psychological demons. 
Brian currently has two books on the market, Get Out of Your Head, a toolkit for living with and overcoming anxiety, and Get Out of Your Head, Volume 2, Navigating the Abyss of Depression. His mission is to help as many sufferers as possible through not only those books, but also his blog and podcast appearances. So, Brian, welcome this morning. How are you today, sir? Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Dr. Pitts. Uh, glad to be here. I'm doing all right. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We really appreciate you being on the show today. Um, I, like I told you in the uh, in the pre-show, um, I had a chance to read some of the sample chapters from both of your books and also a few of your blog posts. Um, and I was really intrigued by your perspective on your mental health journey um, and what kind of, you know, the events that kind of led to you uh, formulating these books and manifesting this, uh, you know, business and everything. So um, for those who don't know you or don't know your uh, company, give the people a little background of, you know, who you are, where you come from and how you got to where you are today. For sure. Yeah. So I like to say that I'm just a regular dude, you know, somebody who has battled anxiety, battled depression. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I just take the lessons that I have learned in my own life and take my own struggles and try to turn them into something positive that I can use to help other people with. So that journey started, you know, with kind of on the anxiety front in high school. And when you're young and when you don't come from a clinical background, like um, my family, nobody, not a lot of doctors in my family, which I mean, uh, blessed with an amazing family, but I just didn't have that background. So when I started dealing with anxiety, when I started dealing with depression, it was like, I know I don't feel great, but I don't exactly know what terms to put on these things. And so in high school and in college, it was like, I'm struggling, but I, I, I can't really get to the root of it. And also, you know, kind of one thing that I think is important to talk about, right, is when I was 18, I was just like, I was, a, I was like a, a masculine dude, right? And it was like, for one reason or another, society tells us like, guys are supposed to be strong guys are supposed to put down you know push down their their emotions and i internalized that in a lot of ways and i said i'm you know i'm i'm not dealing with this stuff i'm you know i'm tough i can handle it whatever and i'm i'm really i'm not trying to say that like you know if if that works for somebody then maybe it works but i think through my experience through conversations i've had with other folks i think a lot of the times that doesn't work, right? And we push those emotions down, they grow and fester. And then five years later, 10 years later, it's like, oh, it's reemerged. And now I really don't know what to do with this sort of thing. So, you know, for me, it was like, I knew from, I'm not gonna, I, I don't know how early of an age, but I knew early on in the journey of me dealing with anxiety, me dealing with depression, that this was gonna be a significant battle that I had to really dedicate time and attention to. And so for one reason or another, or in one way or another, I just, as soon as I started struggling with these things, I said to myself, like, okay, I got to get help, I got to find some information. And and I, you know, I guess the, the small caveat there being that maybe for the first year, I was like, taking the masculine mach machismo approach being like, nah, I'm good, whatever. Um, but when it when it came back, it was like, okay, no, now I really need to go get some help. And so, you know, I started small, like reading some different books, uh, looking at journal articles and whatnot. And then from there, started going to therapy, trying to basically digest any piece of information I could synthesize that down. And then um, basically like what I, you know, as, as, as the subtitle of my first book alludes to create a, a mental health toolkit that I could take uh, I could take to different situations and be like, okay, I, I now know what anxiety is. I'm starting to feel anxious. And so let me look at my toolkit. I'm in this specific situation. You know, I, I, I have, let's just say tool number three, let me pull that out and give that a shot. And one of the things that I did, right, was like sort of comparing to the the computer science, computer systems um, sort of intro that you gave, Ronnie, was 
basically like there's a notion in the computer science world, or I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be computers, but uh, it's pretty prevalent in you know software development is this notion of split testing or A-B testing. And so what you would do is, right, you would say, okay, somebody's coming to my website, I'm going to make the button blue for some people, and I'm going to make the button green for some people, and we're going to measure who clicks that button the most. And then we're going to, after the fact, like, you know, a month later, we're going to say, who actually did click that button? And then based on the results, we will say, okay, the green button actually won out. So we're going to replace what was previously a blue button. The green one is now going to be the default for everybody. And so for me, it was like going to these different situations, right? It's like, okay, I'm going on a date with somebody that I'm interested in and I'm really nervous. And so I read this book that said, you know, visualize yourself succeeding in the situation. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to see myself not being anxious. I'm going to see myself not being nervous. I'm going to go try it out. And I did that for a lot of strategies and eventually got to the point where I was like, okay, I know that that one doesn't work for me. I know that that one does. And eventually, again, going back to that synthesizing piece, took the strategies that I felt did work for me, put them into my mental health toolkit, and then started writing about them. So that was sort of you know, what led to my first book. Similar story for the depression side of thing, right? I was like, okay, new sort of battle, uh, even though it's in the mental health realm, but the same idea of taking different concepts that I had learned um, through different media uh, or just like came up with on my own and tried those things out. And then once I felt as though I had a little bit of a game plan, I wrote another book and continue to do that um, with the blog posts that I put out and then coming on and talking with folks like yourselves, having conversations about all of those learning. So it's um, it's become something of a mission for me, right? Uh, I, I say this a lot is if you have dealt with anxiety, if you have dealt with depression, it becomes such a part of your soul, right? Your emotions are so wrapped up in it. And it becomes hard not to look at it and say, like, this is such a big part of me. And it's so important to me. Obviously, we wouldn't necessarily say like, anxiety is so important to me. I love anxiety, right? But it's more just the fact that so much of your personal history is wrapped up in it. And you have this emotional base there because of it. And so I look at the mental health journey, the mental health struggles. And I say, I know how painful that has been in my own life. I can look at others and say, I know, like, maybe I don't know all the, you know, specific details of each person's circumstance, but I can say, I can probably understand, or I can reasonably understand the amount of pain that you're going through. I can have some kind of idea as to what it is. Right. And I see that. And I can say, man, I know how difficult that is because I've experienced it and I want to help in any way that I can. And that is sort of the the impetus for all the the writings and the podcasting and and just the speaking that I do in the space. When I was uh, and I appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing that with us. One of the things when I was reading one of your blog posts uh, last night was the one on um, anxiety is not a superpower, and um, I love that article because uh, one of one of the things you mentioned at the beginning was how you know kind of social media influencers and stuff like that, you know, coin these mental health terms and stuff like that, and I see it all the time. Um, you know, they'll coin, you know, gaslighting was the word of the year last year. And, you know, everybody swear they know a gaslighter. Um, when I do uh, sessions with clients for the first time and I act about, you know, family history and mental health, everybody in the family bipolar, everybody narcissistic and stuff like that. And so people throw these mental health terms around and they really don't have a, a full understanding of what it really means to have the clinical side of these things. And, and one of the things you mentioned in that uh, blog post was how, you know, People will, like you say, people will think that, you know, saying that I embrace my anxiety is saying that anxiety is my superpower. Um, one of the things that I've mentioned on the show before is that, you know, our feelings as a whole are superpowers. Um, and being able to understand, give me, Dr. Pisky, take over real quick. Give me one second. Brian, Sorry about that. 
No, you're fine. Right. You want to go ahead and finish your thought? Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things, you know, as you were mentioning how, you know, um, people can look at anxiety and things like that. When we do talk about anxiety and, you know, at, at baseline, the definition of anxiety is, you know, the fear, concern, worry, doubts about, you know, a specific person, place, situation, whatever the case may be. Um, I liked how you were able to break down how, you know, being able to recognize and identify the situation that caused your anxiety and being able to have the toolkit that you mentioned um, to be able to get through those situations is really important. And, you know, I always talk about anxiety can work, you know, in situations in your favor, but also anxiety can work against you. And that's when we start to talk about the clinical level of anxiety, when people start to shut down, freeze up, have the physical symptoms and things like that. You know, that those things right there, yeah, that's not a superpower. That's your superpower working against you in that instance. But being able to understand what situations, what people, what areas cause and trigger your anxiety can be in your favor. So that way, when you come across those situations again, you can implement tools and skills necessary to have a toolkit, like you mentioned, to be able to combat those situations. Um, what were some of the tools that you found helpful along your journey and being able to deal with uh, your anxiety and other mental health symptoms? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, one thing like from a high level, if we zoom out a bit, right, we could talk about the tactical, really in the weeds sort of tactics, which are, those are helpful as well. But I, I kind of want to give like a 30,000 foot view and, and talk about the brand just a little bit, right? So the notion of get out of your head, um, the reason why I named the brand and then the books um, with that moniker was just the fact that there's so many resources telling us, right? It's like, okay, you know, you, you talk about books like The Secret, The Law of Attraction and whatnot. And look, I, I'm not here to bash anyone or any subject or topic. It's more, you know, we need to figure out what works for us. And I feel as though, you know, if folks who are really subscribed to the notion of law of attraction, which for, for those who are listening who haven't heard it before, it's basically, you know, you can create anything in your external world that you create in your internal world. So if you, the, the theory goes that if you constantly visualize yourself having a million dollars and you feel really good about it, the universe is going to conspire to bring you that million dollars. And I can't, you know, I can't with, with, 100% certainty say that that is or isn't true. All that I know is that I have, you know, I sort of internalized that kind of logic at one point, And you know, I alluded, alluded to it in my preamble a little bit, uh, and said, look, if I want to not have anxiety, then I need to visualize myself not having it, I need to think about myself feeling good all the time being, you know, ridded of uh, my mental afflictions and whatnot. And so I spent a lot of years going around saying, okay, like, I'm going to this situation, I'm nervous about it. I see myself succeeding, I see myself doing well and all that. And I felt that for me, and for a lot of people that I talked to, maybe not necessarily everybody out there. And again, that's why uh, maybe the law of attraction works for some people. But I, a lot of people that I work with, I think we quickly find that the law of attraction either doesn't work or uh, leads very quickly to what we would call rumination, right? Overthinking on our problems. And so one thing when it you know when it comes to any situation that makes us anxious, whether it's going on a date, going on a job interview, or something related to athletics, is we have this thing on the calendar and we say to ourselves, "Oh, I'm anxious about it," but so and so told me that if I visualize myself doing well and I think about it, I'm not only going to succeed, but I'm going to feel better, right? I'm going to feel confident because I have produced this mental image in my mind. And I think for a lot of us that deal with anxiety, unfortunately, that either doesn't work or it just is really, really hard to do. And the reason is that as you go to that spot in your mind and you have this connection to fear, right? So, okay, I have a track meet next week and I'm nervous about it. And then I say to myself, I, I see myself on the track and I'm running fast and I'm holding the gold medal after the race and all that. 
your brain is saying, yeah, yeah, we're seeing that, but we're also seeing the fear that we already feel. And so there, those two things are interwoven. And every time that you go back to that image in your mind, that fear is still there. And the more that you think about something, right, it tends to expand. And so in one way or another, or in an indirect way, I like to say that the more that you go to that thing that scares you in your mind, the more you're going to perpetuate that feeling of fear. And so for me, talking about you know, pulling it all the way back and saying like, what, what are some of the strategies? What are some of the tactics? The reason I wanted to give a 30,000 foot view um, of the brand and saying, get out of your head is if, if we are operating under the presumption that you know, visualizing, law of attraction, whatever, is probably not a great strategy for our mental health or for those who deal with anxiety, then the goal is not to continually visualize ourselves in those situations. It's to get out of our heads entirely, to stop going into the mental image that creates and perpetuates the fear. And then from there, we can, obviously a lot easier said than done, but we can return to normal life. And we can say, look, I know I have a track meet on the calendar next week. I know I have a football game on the calendar next week. That scares me. It absolutely does. But if I go and live my life a little bit, like I'm going to say as if the game were to never come, as if uh, live my life as normal, as, as difficult as that is to do, right? Then all of a sudden I allow myself to sink into the moment in front of me. And for those few moments, that fear, that thing out on the calendar doesn't exist. And it's like the more that we can chain those moments together, we're starting to create an internal state of a little bit more of equanimity. And then if we can do that all the way up to the event, even though it's really difficult to do, we then might get to that event and, and all of a sudden look around and be like, wow, I'm actually not nearly as scared as I thought I was going to be. And then because we're in that state where we're more tranquil, guess what? We have a little bit better of a performance in that specific event. So that's, I know it's a little bit of a rant, but that's like, it's just so crucial to everything that I talk about. I just felt like I had to get that out there. I don't think it's a rant at all. I, as you were talking, I wrote down conditioning, right? One of the mm -hmm. things that I say when I'm, I'm working with my clients is, and I don't, like you said, I'm, I don't bash any particular theory or anything like that. I don't, I've never used visualization to help my clients address things like it's just not an approach that I take. Um, but when you talk about that fear, right, we, we process false evidence appearing real, right? And it's like we spend so much, to your point, what you feed grows. So it's like you spend all of this time obsessively thinking about you know, the track me and I have a warped sense of humor and I do incorporate humor <laughs> in my work. And as you were talking about the track meet and using visualization and people like, oh, you know, visualize yourself winning. I'm like, yeah, but they're going to visualize yourself tripping or falling and skidding up their forehead and their knee during the track meet. So that doesn't work. It doesn't work. So you have to you have to bit by bit, piece by piece, you have to, to, to work on your conditioning because you didn't, unless there's some extenuating circumstance, you didn't come out of the womb anxious. You've practiced. You have absolutely positively practiced. And because you've practiced, you're now battling anxiety. So how do we undo stuff? We have to recondition ourselves and you got to shift that focus. And it's not about shifting the focus to, oh, I'm running this track me and I'm winning. It's shifting the focus to those strategies, to those tools that can help you. And sometimes I just say to my clients, I was like, okay, so what? And I'm, I'm unconventional. So I'm like, okay, so you entered track me and 
you fall. Okay, so you're not going to win that track meet. Okay, or you're not going to win every track meet anyway. I, I'm real big on normalization. I'm really, really big on normalizing stuff and like, oh, well, Dr. Pitts, you know, it's like I, I was working with a client yesterday and client catastrophizes all the time, all the time. And, and I'm like, okay, so what's the likelihood that that's going to happen? What, what, are, what are three alternative outcomes that that could be? But let, let's talk about that. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds crazy. And they always say, it sounds crazy saying it out loud. Okay. Well, you're saying it to yourself, so let's say it out loud. Let's talk about it. Let's unpack it. <laughs> let's get to the essence of it. Stop choosing to sit in your egg. Stop choosing to sit in your egg. Let's get it out so that you can stop being held hostage to it and talk about it. And at the end of the day, guess what? <laughs> Everything's not going to go your way. You're not going to win every track meet. Hate to be the bearer of bad news. You know, Ronnie takes cheap shots. Like, I always haven't won a Super Bowl in 500 years. <laughs> the running joke is every season, Cowboys fans are going to say, this is the season that we're going to go to the Super Bowl. Hey, <laughs> it's all good. Conditioning. There, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, you know, up, supreme Ron. confidence and then there's delusion. But we're not talking about that right now. No. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, both of you all uh, hit on a lot of great things, especially, you know, we'll visualize. And I think, one of the issues I like both of you all mentioned with visualize visualization is that when you visualize what it's like to achieve what it is you're trying to achieve, like you said, your brain will also naturally think of the barriers and things that can prevent that as well. You know, one of the ways I try to circumvent that with clients who have anxiety is being able to, for me, is like, what it, can you identify what the worst case scenario in this situation is? That fear, worry, concern that you have, what is the worst possible outcome that comes to mind? The classic example I always give is somebody who has a fear of flying. You know, well, what would your worst case scenario be? Nine times out of 10, obviously the plane coming down, right? And so like Dr. Pitt said, one of the things I try to do with, you know, normalizing, you know, those situations is once we, I can identify what the worst case, worst case scenario is, my next question is, how realistically close do you think you are to that worst case scenario happening on a scale of one to 10? So if, for example, if a person says, well, I think eight out of 10, the plane gonna come down. Okay, we know we have for you, we have some work to do on how we can, you know, really systematically break down that barrier and fear of flying if that's something that you wanna achieve. I think another thing too, that contributes to a lot of people with anxieties and especially our student athletes is this idea of that when, we're trying to, you know, really build momentum in our lives, get wins, you know, built up behind us. We have this idea of being perfect in those, in those uh, tasks. And I always tell people, if the goal is perfection, you will fail at it every single time. You know, even with athletes, like you said, with the track example, you know, yes, you will not win every single track meet. And I think a lot of times when we talk about goal setting for athletes, especially at the beginning of the season, having realistic goals for yourself. Yes, having team goals if you play team sport is important too. But as an individual, what are some of your individual goals that you realistically can achieve for this season with your abilities, with your knowledge, your skill set, all those things? What is the realistic goals that you can achieve? And then what are the objectives we'll put in place to help you get there? I think something else that contributes to a lot of people with anxiety is that when we do goal set, a lot of our goals that we want to achieve are long-term goals, meaning that they're a year plus out. And if I tell you, oh, it's going to take you three years before you become an All-American or, you know, become draft eligible, whatever the case may be. You'll probably be like, well, that's a long time from now. Like, what am I going to do to want to stay on track? And so I really stress and, and emphasize objective. 
because those are what help you stay disciplined and consistent on your journey. It can help you keep in check and keep in rational perspective those anxieties and those fears that you have along the way. I always tell people, if we try to control or try to dismiss or ignore those feelings, we do lose out on the ability for them to be a superpower for us because we're missing out on the signs and symptoms or the situations that cause those things to be present in our life. So if we can be real with ourselves, sit with those feelings long enough to identify what is the barrier or worst case scenario that we can have, and then applying those skill, the skill sets and tools necessary to combat that, when those situations come up again, the these this uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The sensitivity to that trigger eventually will come down. And then when you find yourself in that situation, you have the, the, the game plan, the battle plans to go out there and really do that thing to the best of your abilities. And at the end of the day, perfection is not the goal. So having in your mind what it is that you want to achieve realistically can help quell some of that anxiety too. Um, can Ryan, I, can I'll, I I'll, oh, go ahead, Dr. On that one more, one more thing. And yeah, I, go ahead, yeah. I don't want nobody to send me hate mail because uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, my approaches are crazy sometimes. But when I think about the, the clients that I've had that were afraid of flying <laughs> in that example, and I'm like, well, what is the fear of flying? Well, if the plane crashes, I'm going to die. And I said, well, aren't you going to die anyway? And they're like, well, yeah, but I don't want to die in a plane crash. And I literally was like, well, what do you care? You're going to be dead. <laughs> like, you're, like you're, you're, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And it's not like you're going to plummet 33,000 feet to your death and survive it and be like, oh my God, I can't believe that all my bones are broken. But like, you're not gonna survive. You're not gonna survive. So you're not gonna be like sitting around saying, oh, I never wanna fly again because like it just, and I know that sounds crazy, but call me and say, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm an insane therapist and I just don't know it because I am so strong-willed. And that's, that is actually an intervention that I recommend for my clients. I tell them for as strong-willed as you are about not allowing somebody to disrespect you or you know, not being viewed as A, B, C, D, F, or G, be as strong-willed about fighting for your mental health. That same fire, that same passion, that same tenacity, that same refusal that you have to be defeated on the court, on the field, at the baseball diamond or whatever the case may be, have that same passion about not being a hostage to your anxiety or to your depression or whatever the case may be. You really can beat it. You can beat it. All you have to do is decide that you're going to and then just like anything else that we decide that we're going to take the necessary steps to start to make that healthier place and space here your reality. But that's, you know, maybe I'm crazy. I don't, I don't, I don't think you're crazy. I do want to jump in on the, the flight stuff just because I talk about it in my books. Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, put my hand up and say that I deal with, uh, I, what, what do you call it? Um, I forgot There's what some, the, the specific phobia yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, geez. Um, aerophobia, I think it, it's called. Something like that. I think, yeah. it, I, think it's, I think it does start with an A. I think it is aerophobia. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, 
I get anxious about flying. I don't really enjoy flying, but I like to travel to different places. So it's it comes with the territory, right? And the way that I have looked at it and the way that I talk about it in some of my books is so sort of rehashing what the both of you said, but number one, I look at it and I say, okay, so we're doing the catastrophizing thing and then step back and kind of look at it objectively, go on the internet and say, what are the odds that, you know, there is a, a, a catastrophe on a, on a plane or whatever. And I, I think, so one, there, there's a couple of facts. One is driving is actually much more dangerous than flying. So that's an important one to call out. Uh, and then two, and, and, and it doesn't make what has happened to any of these people any less serious or less tragic, but I think in the US, I'm pretty sure on commercial airliners, like maybe one person in the last 10 years has died or something like that. So again, tragic for those folks and doesn't make it any less tragic, but it, it means that on the whole, airline travel is pretty safe, right? So I step back to my and I think to myself, all right, like the stats show that this this is a pretty safe thing. This isn't a crazy thing to do. I think that what is difficult about airline travel in comparison to driving is that we have to give up the control, right? So with driving, it's like, I got my hands on the wheel. If anything happens, I, I am responsible for this. And at least I know that I, I was the one who made the decision, right? It's sort of, I won't go down this tangent further than what I'm about to say, but it's sort of the same idea as, all right, we've got these autonomous cars that might be coming, self-driving cars. And even though that's this, these statistics may say that those will be safer than human drivers. We don't want to give up control uh, because, you know, who knows what the decision making is for those cars and whether they would say, well, Brian's driving, but he's about to hit a bus of 20 people. And let's say, let's save the 20 people, but not Brian or whatever. Right. So uh, I, I'll kind of leave that can of worms opened and, and move away from it. Uh, but yeah, so back, back to the, the flying piece, right. Is so there are times like there's really bad turbulence on the plane and I'm, I'm not, I'm not like making light of that, that, that stinks. Right. I think the feeling that you get when you're in those situations and you're like, oh my goodness, like I might die right now. I think what I think back to is there's, there was a situation in my own life. I was in Hawaii in 2018. Uh, people probably saw it on the news. There was basically a false alert that went out from this, you know, the, the, the Hawaiian government that said basically there was a nuclear bomb coming to the island. And so everybody on the island got these push notifications saying there's a nuke coming. And it was kind it was, it was kind of like, sorry, you know, and I mean, what else, what else can you really do in that situation? If, if that's the truth, if that's what's actually happening, they were like, take cover, you know, and it's, okay, that's, that's all you really could do. But I felt such horrible, harrowing anxiety and depression in that moment. And I, you know, I, I kind of think back to the, the flight example of I, in that moment, I was like, I think I was 27 at the time. And I, it was really like almost, uh, it was kind of like Charles Dickens, a Christmas Carol. And it was like, holy crap, I wasted my life. I didn't do the things I wanted to do. I put those things on hold, whatever it may be. When you're in the, you know, when you're on the airplane and you're getting some turbulence and you're having that same sort of feeling of like, I'm going to die. If you don't die, I think it's important to remember to say, remember that feeling that you felt and whatever you said to yourself up there, even if it was in the heat of the moment, if, if you said, oh, you know, God, if you get me out of here, I'll pray a hundred Hail Marys, I'll apply to college, whatever it is, go do that. That's a, that's a that's, really great perspective. That's yeah, I, I've never uh, thought about it from that perspective, but that's a really great uh, reframe as well too. Um, because like you said, in moments like that, where 
you know, God forbid, you know, we get a, a nuclear threat, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or even like if you want to deter, I've been on some planes where the turbulence and, the, and you can feel the plane drop a few thousand feet in a few seconds. And you mm-hmm. feel like, oh, well, this is it, you know, even mm-hmm. in those moments or <clears throat> in moments when I, I might have had one too many uh, drinks and, you know, I'm like, God, this me again. I told you if you got me out of the situation, I would do better. Well, here I am. I promise I'm going to do better. You know, in those moments right there, yeah, you know, that that fear, the thing that you really want to do is like, well, damn, if I had more time, I would do this, whatever the case may mm-hmm. be. You know, that thing on the other side of that fear, like you said, is exactly what you should do. I really, mm-hmm. That was a really beautiful reframe right there. Can I, I, want, can I ahead, add, just real quick, it, it, what I questioned as you were speaking, Brian, so is it, is it that people are a, afraid of flying? or is the great or is the true fear fear of dying is the true fear fear of falling you know during the track meet or is it fear of failure i think that what we've just sort of teased out is that some of the some of the things that are causing anxiety and depression to to escalate at the root of it is a fear that that allows the anxiety and the depression to sort of mask what's really going on. If, does that make sense? Like, I, I, I wonder if in some cases, the anxiety and the depression is the, the, the camouflage or the smoke and mirrors, if you will, for something way, 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 way deeper that hasn't been addressed, fear of failure, fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, you know, fear of not being good enough, fear, what whatever it is, and the the superficial, oh, I'm anxious, I'm anxious, I'm anxious. Well, what are you really saying? What put your finger on the pulse right. of what's lying underneath of that, and therein lies where your solutions are to better equip yourself to combat it. Just a, a thought. I think it's uh, spot on, and I think right. if I could say that one of the points I wanted to make, and I kind of made it indirectly, right, is, um, look, nobody wants to go down in a plane crash. Nobody, like, it's horrible. It's tragic. It's horrible. It would be very painful for a brief period of time. Nobody wants that. But I think back to, there are times in my life, right, where it's like, I was on, I was 18 and I was on a plane. It was like, oh, but I, you know, we can't go down because I got all these things that I want to do with my life, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying that at 80, I would feel necessarily like totally, totally different. But I do know that in my own life, I have looked at some of those situations. And I say, okay, I have in the last however many years, I've done some of those things that I was hoping to do. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you draw, if you run it all the way out and you say, okay, I'm 80, I'm on a plane, we're going down. I did everything I had on my bucket list. And, and, you know, to your point, Dr. Pitts, like, unfortunately, the reality is we're all going to pass away at some point. Anyway, you say, I did the way I want to do it. This is not the way I wanted to go out but there's nothing left that I have to do in my life besides enjoy myself. I think that's a, you know, going back to the point you made of, is it something deeper, right? Maybe the anxiety is, is your body or your mind telling you like, don't die with the music inside of you. Right. Right. That's, 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 uh, I really like that idea too. And I think also, you know, some of the things that contribute to that anxiety and some of our, you know, our uh, unrealistic expectations is our ability to want to control things. Even to the flight, I think, you know, I always tell people, I wonder how much of our anxiety is really is fueled by our level of wanting to control situations. 
we know that if I have control over a situation, I can dictate more times than not how the results are going to be. And I think even when you take for flying, for example, I think a lot of people's fear of flying or even like for me, I have a fear of roller coasters. I know on a roller coaster, once it starts to go up, I have absolutely no control over that. And that bothers me. And that, that fuels my anxiety because I have no control over if this roller coaster gets stuck, breaks, malfunctions, whatever the case may be. I am trusting not only myself, but the people around me, the machine that I'm sitting on, that is going to take care of me. And that's asking myself a lot to give that trust up to something else or somebody else. And I think for a lot of times with our anxieties, we have to ask ourselves, do I trust myself enough to go through with this? And do I trust the things and people around me that more times than not, the most positive outcome will likely happen? And I think, you know, those are some questions that people have to ask internally as well. Um, Brian, I wanted, I wanted you to touch on real quick also um, because I, I had a chance to read, this, like I said, some of the sample chapters of your second book. And I was really fascinated about, you know, uh, the first couple of chapters about, you know, what led you into this discovery and deep dive of depression and things like that. Um, if you could uh, really quick for us, um, just kind of summarize some of your uh, experiences what helped lead to the book. And then just some of your uh, personal experiences with the abyss that you talked about, the abyss of depression that it can sometimes drag us into. For sure. Yeah. So the book that I wrote, Get Out of Your Head, Volume 2, Navigating the Abyss of Depression, that came out in 2021, started writing it, I believe, in 2019, 2020. Uh, yeah, 2019. Um, but anyway, it, it was sort of the product of a depressive episode that I had gone through in my own life from 2018 to somewhere in 2019. And, you know, the mindset was the same as the first book. It was basically, okay, I'm dealing with this thing that has a large impact on my life and has created a lot of pain for me. And I know that like the goal is to get through it and get back to a normal life, get back to healthy functioning and just feeling better. And so in the process of getting there, I'm going to learn a bunch of things and then hopefully I get there. And then I would like to turn around and take what I learned and share them with other folks. When we pull in the abyss piece, right? I was sort of going for some sort of metaphorical, symbolic um, thing concept that would sort of weave the narrative together. And so if it, you know, if you read the book, right, I, I talk a lot about this metaphor of um, falling into the abyss of essentially like, you know, we are all mariners sh sailing our ships across the, the, the ocean that is life. And occasionally, you know, a whirlpool opens up in the middle of the ocean and sucks our boats down and, and tempts us to shipwreck, right? So uh, the, the abyss and then also the, I guess, the abyss is sort of this metaphor for depression. And then the shipwreck is sort of what could potentially happen, right? If, if we fall into this state and we're unable to get ourselves out of it. And so that was kind of just a way to weave the narrative together and make it maybe a little more compelling, uh, though I'm open to the, <laughs> the idea of maybe I overdid it. I don't know. Um, but, but people often say that depression is an abyss, right? Because it's like, it's this hole in your mind that you can fall into and feel so uncategorically bad for mm -hmm. a long period of time. And so I just wanted to use that metaphor to speak to the disease itself. But then, you know, tactically speaking, I, you know, I went into the book and I basically laid out, okay, this is how depression more or less works. These are some things that we can do to combat it, both on the high level and also on the low level. And I think one of the difficulties with depression, right, I, that I talk about is if anxiety, like anxiety is often compared to, or it's like synonymized with our fight or flight system, right? So if, if our, you know, if we're standing in front of a bear and that fight or flight system gets revved up, 
we feel all the same sorts of feelings that we might when we are anxious. The nice thing about the fight or flight system is it can't run forever. Sure, it, like some of us have overactive fight or flight systems, and that can lead to you know generalized anxiety disorder or you know raised cortisol levels in our blood and and all sorts of annoying things. But for the most part, like you're not going to be in fight or flight every second of every day. And so if right. you can get that system to power down, then the anxiety is at least going to go away temporarily. With depression, there isn't a, the same mechanism in the body, right? At least that, that I know of that says like, hey, depression is on, depression is off. It's this complex disease of that's comprised of a lot of different factors, right? So, you know, if you talk to 10 different people and you said, give me your best guess as to why you think you might be depressed. You get all sorts of different things. And, and also, like, obviously, on, on anxiety, you would get different ideas, too, but they would all be centered around fear, right? You'd say, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm worried I'm not going to be able to pay my bills tomorrow. I'm worried about that track meet that I have next week, that basketball game. I'm worried about the health of my friends and family, but it's all fear-oriented, right? Depression, it's, there is a feeling behind it, but the the ways that manifest are a lot different. So it could be, uh, I'm unhappy in my job. I'm unhappy with my family life. Um, you know, I, I, you know I, I guess maybe somebody wouldn't necessarily, they might not immediately figure this out on their own, but a doctor might say like, look, you know, you haven't been exercising, you haven't been eating well, and your body is responding in a certain way that is making mm -hmm. you feel, you know, helpless, hopeless, depressed, whatever it may be. Um, and then there's also like, so I guess what I'm getting at, right, is in the book, I talk about from a high level, depression is sort of this, um, it's the, the output, the, the product of what I guess we would say like three different buckets. So you've got your biological bucket, your psychological bucket and your social bucket. So, mm -hmm. uh, on the biological side, right. It's like, okay, how are we treating our bodies? What foods are we eating on the, on the psychological side? It's like, what thoughts are we thinking? Dr. Pitts, you had mentioned that at, at the beginning of the show, it's like product of bad thoughts in our lives. Uh, what beliefs do we hold, you know, uh, kind of our neurotransmitter activity, I guess, maybe you might be able to say that that's biological, but there's some overlap there, right. And then the social piece is sort of, okay, um, don't uh, things that I mentioned before, right, don't like my relationship, don't like my friends don't like, uh, you know, my job, whatever it is. And so the difficulty with depression is, it's, it can come from a lot of different places. And because of that, we have to approach it a little bit more holistically, maybe somebody is like, my biology is off, my psychology is off, and my social life is off, right? Maybe just one of those things is way off. And so because of that, we need to treat depression, I think we need to give it, a, I don't know what the right word is, but we need to be a little bit more careful because it can come from a bunch of different places. But then the, over, the overarching theme uh, of the book through that lens, right, is basically saying, in order to combat depression, we need to do the difficult work of identifying which of those buckets are off kilter, if you will, and then building them back up in whatever way we think is most effective. So again, if, if I were to say to myself, I don't like my job, I don't like my you know future prospects, I feel as though uh, I'm never going to be able to provide for my family and whatnot, I need to do the difficult work to say, like, how do I go about changing those things? If somebody else is maybe feeling depression, because they're constantly bombarded with negative thoughts about themselves in the world, uh, need to do some psychological interventions to change those things, right? And it's difficult. But um, I guess, in a nutshell, that's kind of the lens through which the book is looking. And then along the way, you know, I talk about my own story, I kind of weave it in with some of the latest research on depression, um, and how anxiety can often lead us to depression. And then I also leave folks with just helpful things like, uh, you know, sort of very tactical pieces, because again, depression is, is a little bit more high level, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that we can still do on a daily hourly basis to, to improve our mood. Some of those things might be like taking a cold shower. I know it sounds a little crazy, but there's some science there, maybe going for a run or a walk, 
exercising, mm-hmm. like, you know, there's a lot of good science there that shows that um, the brain and the body respond really well to exercising. So it's like getting on a regimented plan uh, can help us a lot. They sometimes they'll say like just as much, if not more than, you know, psychoactive, uh, excuse me, psychotropic drugs. And mm-hmm. I guess the the message that I pull through the book is, you know, it's not me saying, hey, here's the silver bullet. It is more saying, look, because depression is this complex disease comprised of many factors, we need to hit it with as many different ideas, tactics, strategies as we can, and look for which of those strategies affect us in the most positive fashion the most. I I really agree with everything you said. And one of the perspectives I like to give about depression is because like you said, a lot of times depression is stigmatized and demonized as this, you know, terrible, just systemic shutdown of a person. And a lot of times, like you said, um, pharmaceutical industry, psychiatrists, psychologists, and, you know, sometimes uh, clinicians and things like that can give this stigma that, you know, when you're depressed and stuff like that, medication is the only route and the whole nine yards. I like to look at depression as hibernation. Um, and, and I go into this spiel with my clients about, you know, when we look at animals who hibernate, we don't, we see they hibernate, but oftentimes we don't ask ourselves, what are some of the leading causes of animals to hibernate? Recognizing that for that animal during, you know, a certain time of year, there's a fundamental lack of certain resources for how they just go about their way of living. For humans, when we recognize a situation or an issue that gives us this perception that I don't have the tools or skills ne- necessary to get through the situation, I need to preserve my energy. I need to preserve myself in the best way I know how until I have an answer. And typically that looks like us losing the mental energy and physical energy to go out there and still put on a smile on our face, go out there and live life. We have those people, we call them high functioning depressed. And, you know, so when I talk to people about looking at depression as a hibernation of your body until it finds those resources to combat that thing, you know, it gives them a different perspective that I'm not helpless in this fight. I'm not, this is not a hopeless lose-lose situation. It's my body's way of protecting me, preserving my mental and physical energy until I have the resources necessary to come out of my shell, come out of this hibernation and attack this thing head on because it doesn't go anywhere. If you allow it to just sit there and fester, it will continue to rob you of your physical and mental energy until you feel that you can't move, you can't get out of bed, you can't be around family and friends, you can't go to work, can't take care of your hygiene, all those things that we see that depression does to people. Um, So I really like your perspective on that. And yes, there are a lot of holistic options that people can use, whether it's physical exercise, a better diet, um, having talk therapy, all these different avenues, having friends, having support systems, having a positive outlook on life, all these different holistic options that don't require having to take an SSR or any other psychotropic drugs to help with depression. Um, Dr. Pierce, I know you wanna chime in as well. No, I'm gonna let you ask any more questions because we're at time um, and then I'll I'll share a final thought and close this out. Okay. Um, anything else you wanna ask? So, uh, Brian, I guess my, my final question for you is, you know, now that you've written these two books and everything, um, what is your outlook on, you know, mental health and what are some things that, you know, us as clinicians, us that are in the field day in and day out, what are some things that you would like to see clinicians highlight and focus on more for people out there who are either just getting into mental health, wanting to get, wanting to get into the journey of improving their mental health, and what are some things that they can do in their everyday life to help with the, the battles they have now? Yeah, for sure. And I'll try not to go too far down the rabbit hole because it can be a rabbit hole, right? But I think one of the difficulties that a lot of us encounter with the medical system when it comes to mental health is that, and, and, and I'm not placing blame on any doctor, right? It's like, I know a lot of doctors, I know a lot of psychiatrists, they're wonderful people, they want to help people. It is more that the system is sort of not 
aligned in a way that necessarily always brings about the results that we want. So what I'm getting at there, right, is if somebody is in a dark, hopeless state and the system says, bring them in, talk to them for 30 minutes, send them on their way with some medication, it's like, what the heck do we think that's going to do? You know, going back to the point that Dr. Pitts made of getting deeper and figuring out what is the root cause. Sure, medication can be really helpful. Like there is a ton of science out there. There's a ton of research that's shown that it's been helpful for a lot of people, life-saving for a lot of people. But if the root cause is not neurotransmitter related, then the, the drugs can only do so much, right? And so I think if we look at the statistics and we say, look, it's not like the drugs are 100% successful. May, and I don't, I don't know exactly what the, what the number is, but um, obviously there's a lot of complicating factors as to why they're not 100%. But my, my vote or my suggestion, right, would be that there are those root sources, those root causes that the drugs, maybe they can help you feel a little, a little bit better and then look at those sources and confront those sources and work on them. But by, like, by themselves, you're not going to take a pill and all of a sudden be like, I love my job, even though I have hated it for 10 years. You know. So my suggestion or what I would love to see from the medical industry a little bit more, and again, not casting judgment, not pointing fingers, just saying like, I think we could work together in terms of like mental health advocates and folks who kind of come from my side of um, the sphere, uh, and then more of the clinician slash uh, medical side of things, I would love to see a little bit of like coming together and making things a little more holistic. I know that is not always going to be possible, right? But if somebody comes in and they're like, dude, I wake every up every day and I wonder why life is worth living. Again, talking to them for 30 minutes and sending them on their way with a bottle of medication is not going to do it. And so maybe, maybe the the solution is maybe maybe we can't get to the point where the doctors have so much free time that they can sit with that person for two hours. But maybe we just say, look, the medication is going to be one important piece of your healing journey. But I am also going to make a referral to you know a, a holistic practitioner or somebody like a talk therapist, somebody that you can just sit down with, hash this out, and we can really work on this together and come up with a plan. Because I think, unfortunately, even though the, the conversation around mental health is growing and there are more resources and whatnot, a lot of people still feel stuck. They still feel hopeless. They still feel helpless. And I think all of us, right, the three of us and then everybody who participates in this industry, we need to do our best to help them in ways that are most helpful. And right now, I don't think we are accomplishing that goal to the degree that we could. I really agree. I do, I do think it is a, uh, a all hands on deck type of situation. I do think as a whole, there are a lot of things that can be done, not just a one stop shop with mental health. I think it's a collaborative effort amongst all fields of mental health from psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, social workers, uh, the, the field counselors, school counselors, the whole nine yards. Even the insurance companies, the ones who write the checks, the ones who give the reimbursements and all that, we know that their hands have a lot of interest and stuff like that. The pharmaceutical industry, the whole nine yards. So I do think there are things we can definitely do better and not just talk about it, but be about it as well. Um, so, so thank you for that, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, man. I, I am medication intervention. Well, let me put this disclaimer out there first so I don't get no hate mail. To your point and, and piggybacking on what you said, this is... We are in no way, shape, form, or fashion saying that medication intervention could not be a viable option for some people. If, if that's the route that you have chosen to go, that is your choice. It is, that is between you 
and the psychiatrist that is managing your meds. What we are saying is that there are so many other options for some clients that are available to them that can help them to avoid medication intervention. The reason why I'm not a huge advocate for medication intervention is because I call it naivete, call it ignorance or whatever. My brain says, oh, to your point, Brian, the medication is tricking the brain into thinking that you're not depressed, but it doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is because all you got to do is listen to the commercials from the pharmaceutical giants and all of the other side effects that come with it. So if if a medicine can trick your brain into thinking a certain way, why? Because the human mind is very easily manipulated. Very, The human mind is Play-Doh. The human mind is silly putty. So what would it look like if you learned how to develop healthy thinking patterns and beliefs about yourself, others in the world? What would happen if you learned how to develop healthier interpersonal relationships that can be instrumental in helping you with that supportive team that perhaps isn't subscribing to medication intervention as an option that can help you to, to develop the strategies to be able to be a stronger, healthier, better version of yourself without pumping your body full of all of these drugs that are going to give you additional side effects and additional problems that guess what? If we're honest, they're going to prescribe you more drugs to combat the side effects of the drugs that they've put you on for anxiety and depression. All we're saying is give yourself a chance, a fighting chance by exhausting all of the other options that are healthy and available to you before you automatically default to medication intervention. It is going to take work. All of it is. The medication is not a quick fix. There are mental health practitioners. There are life coaches. There are holistic practitioners. There are so many resources available in today's society that can help you to develop the healthy patterns and behaviors that can be instrumental in helping you to break free from the hold that anxiety and depression have on you. That's all we have today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. Brian, you've been absolutely positively freaking amazing. We would love to have you back on another show. Um, yeah, folks, that part right there, what he said. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's football season. Go watch some football. Go have some fun. Enjoy family and friends. It's great to battle anxiety and depression. Spending quality time with people that you love and care about. We'll see November 11th, folks. Um, we're off for the next few weeks because we're, we're trying to work out the, the, the flow of, of going to bi-weekly, which will be in full effect after the first of the year. So we won't see you back until November the 11th. Have a great time. I'll see Ronnie. By the time we come back, I'll be 56 and not 55 anymore. And y'all will still be in second or third person division. Ronnie, set your um, pie hole. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. <laughs>